So we're looking at John chapter 17, and we'll start at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as, I, as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I, have no, I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, last year, there was an amazing discovery that was made in the Tabasco uh, state of Mexico. Uh, it was a location called uh, Aguada Feniz, which is about 850 miles east of Mexico City, uh, what is in called uh, the Mayan Lowlands. And at that site, there was discovered the largest monument, or one of the largest monuments ever to be discovered. Uh, the researcher who discovered it, Tagishi Anoma, estimates that the total volume of the platform and the buildings on top is at least 130 million cubic feet, meaning that it's bigger than the biggest Egyptian pyramid. He also calculated that it would have taken 5,000 people more than six years of full-time work to build it. But the thing that's interesting is that this monument has been there for centuries, and people have walked by it, walked on it, and had no idea that it was there. And it wasn't until they used advanced uh, laser topography uh, through it with an airplane that they discovered this structure. And so they asked this research, researcher, Takeshi uh, Onomara, uh, what, what was the cause of this? How could people miss this for such a long time? And he said this, it's fairly hard to explain, but when you walk on the site, you don't quite realize the enormity of the structure. He says it's over 30 feet high, but the horizontal dimensions are so large that you don't realize the height. The structure was so wide that you could walk up it and not even realize that you're gradually going up this monument. And I think maybe something similar happens in this passage that we're looking at in John chapter 17. There's a number of events that are very significant that happened before Jesus' high priestly prayer and after Jesus' high priestly prayer. Before Jesus' high priestly prayer, he makes some incredible statement. He says he's the light of the world. He says um, that he's the uh, way, the truth, and the life. And then you have these incredible events that happen. You have the healing of Lazarus. You have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus walking, washing the disciples' feet, talking about servanthood. Uh, he talks about how he's going to go away and what's going to take place. And all of these amazing events and teachings leading up to this prayer of Jesus. And then after the prayer, you have the trial, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I think sometimes when we look at this passage in John chapter 17, we can kind of gloss over it because there's so much that happens before that's significant and so much that happens afterwards. 
But I think in this passage we find something really important. I think we find a gem that can uh, influence how we act as the church. Though sometimes we miss the height of what is being communicated by Jesus. See, in this passage, we see kind of two levels of vulnerability. First, Jesus is praying. Now, when we talk to other people, we share, may share some things that are on our heart. But sometimes those things are limited, right? You know, maybe there's some things that we're too embarrassed to share with others. Maybe there's some things that uh, we don't share with others because we feel like we don't want to be a burden to them. But ideally, for the person of faith, when it comes to prayer, we can, we can share everything with God. We can share our hopes, we can share our dreams, we can share everything that's on our heart, and we can share exactly who we are and what's going on inside of us at that point. And so Jesus is praying, and so we get a a sneak peek of what it's like for Jesus to pray to his heavenly Father. But he's also at the end of his life, or near the end of his life. And uh, a lot of times people at the end of their life, they are no longer care about put it, keeping up appearances. It's like they share what is on their heart. Maybe things they never communicated before, things that are personal and heartfelt. And so we get a, a sneak peek of Jesus' prayer life at a critical moment in his life. And the prayer is very specific. We're not going to look at the whole prayer. We didn't read the whole prayer. But we're looking at this last part of the prayer where Jesus is specifically praying for us. He says once again, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their work. And Jesus is going to say some things really significant in this passage. I mean, people go to conferences and sometimes pay thousands of dollars to answer the question, what does God want for his church? And yet, as we look at this prayer, we're going to see exactly what Jesus wants for his church, what he wants his church to look like. Before Paul was, my son Paul was born, I wrote out some prayers for him and uh, Ideally, maybe when he gets older, maybe he'll look back on those prayers and see what, what was his father's heart for him before he was born. And I think in this passage, we get that opportunity. We get to see kind of Christ's heart for us and for the church before uh, the church was even in existence, before the United States was even a figment of anyone's imagination, before we were born, we see what was Jesus' heart and desire for us and for the church. And there's two fundamental things that he prays for in, the, in this passage. The first one is communion, that they may be one, he says. And he repeats that uh, in, in different language over and over again. And when we're talking about communion here, of course, we're not talking about the Lord's Supper where we partake of communion together. We're talking about the fellowship of the body of Christ, and specifically we're talking about unity in the body of Christ. And so Jesus' heart, his desire is that his church would be unified. But here's the thing I struggled with as I was preparing this message and studying this passage this week. As we look at the church throughout the ages, it seems almost like Jesus' prayer hasn't been answered. If Jesus is praying for unity, there's been a lot of division in the history of the church. I mean, it started right at the beginning of the church where the Judaizers were teaching uh, that Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, In the church of Corinth, there was this kind of factionalism where people were saying, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Uh, It's described in uh, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12 of 1 Corinthians. 
For Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so there's division right at the beginning. There's division in the church of Pergamon. Uh, there was various divisions in other churches right at the beginning of the church. And uh, then after that, you see, if you study church history, there was a number of different conflicts. There was conflict over Arianism, Montanism, Marcionism, all of these different isms that we probably don't even know uh, what they are. But there was all these conflicts. Then you go a little bit further and you have a separation between the Eastern and the Western Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, and uh, at that time kind of the Roman Catholic Church. And then from there you have the split off of, in the Protestant Reformation of the Protestant Church from the Catholic Church. And so you have kind of three streams of the church. Uh, and then from there you have the birth of denominationalism. Uh, so that today there's about 200, over 200 denominations, Christian denominations in the United States. And throughout the world there's about 45,000 different denominations. And so divisions have been caused by various different things. They've been caused by money. They've been caused uh, by uh, preferences for how to do church. They've been caused by moral failures, issues of theology. Basically, any reason under the sun. Today, even, there's conflicts within the church. Conflicts uh, over uh, how to handle COVID, how to deal with COVID. Conflicts over race. Conflicts uh, over moral failures that have happened. And so you look at the history of the church, and it seems almost like Jesus' prayer hasn't been answered. But if Jesus' prayer hasn't been answered, why would God not answer his prayer? But I think maybe we're looking at it, and maybe I was looking at it maybe in two general terms, maybe a little bit too black and white. Maybe the presence of division in our churches at some, in some times and some periods does not mean that there's also not unity at some time. Maybe the thing that should surprise us most, when conflict happens, often that surprises us. But maybe the thing that should surprise us, the miracle, should be when unity actually does happen. Maybe that's the thing that we should be surprised about. You think about the church, and uh, Christianity, I believe, is the only religion that's truly a global religion. I mean, you have other religions, and, you know, there's various people that are part of that. But if you think of... Uh, other religions, they have a very strong ethnic and cultural component to them. You know, you think about Islam, and uh, of course, there, there's exceptions again, but a majority of people who are Muslims are from Middle Eastern, North and African descent. You think about Hinduism, people from Southeast Asia, uh, many from India. You think about Buddhism, you have uh, Southeast or, or parts from parts of Asia. And so you have other religions, and they're very cultural and very ethnic, but you have Christianity, and it really is not an ethnic religion. I mean, it started off among Middle Eastern Jews, but then it spread throughout the Roman Empire, and then it kind of had its base in Europe, and then kind of it moved from there to the United States for maybe a short time where the uh, United States was kind of the center of world Christianity, and now it's moving south to Africa, to Brazil, and to other countries in the global south. And so you think about Christianity, and it's like each region of the world is getting a turn at being kind of the center of Christianity. 
And so it's a global religion, and you have people from different ethnicities, different cultures, different races, different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, different personalities, and they all come together in the church. And so, of course, there's going to be a conflict. But the miracle is when there's unity. The miracle is when Jesus' prayer is answered and there is unity. I, I think maybe when Jesus prays here, his, his, his prayer is answered anytime the church does dwell in unity. And so it's partially fulfilled there, but it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in the age to come. Uh, you think about the Lord's Prayer, you know, the way that he taught us to pray. He's, he's taught us to pray, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you think about that prayer, and is God's kingdom present on earth? Yes. Does God's will get done on earth sometimes? Yes. But is it all the time? Is God's kingdom present everywhere at all places? No. But the prayer is answered each time it is fulfilled when the kingdom of God breaks through the kingdom of darkness. And I think the same thing is true in regards to unity. Jesus' prayer is answered each and every time the church is unified in purpose and mission and fellowship. Ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back again, and Jesus' prayer will be fully answered when everyone uh, who is a, a child of God will be unified. And the scriptures speak of that in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide, decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. Anymore, And so that's the future that God has for his people, a future that's uh, marked by unity. There's no more war. The instruments of war are turned into instruments uh, of, of agrarian nature. And so as believers are to strive for unity, and we're to strive for unity first because uh, it points people to Jesus, and second because it's a picture of what's about to come. And so if we don't get along with our brother and sister now, we're going to have to spend eternity with them. So we better start getting along with them now. And then the question after that is, so why is there such disunity? Why is there such conflict in churches? Now, sometimes, of course, conflict is necessary. You know, there are hills to die on, so to speak. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 1, chapter 9, in very strong language, he says, as we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching the gospel, or preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so there are reasons for conflict. There are reasons for a church split or something like that is not always a bad thing. There are sometimes reasons that that has to happen, even though you know, nobody, nobody wants it to happen. However, 90% of the time, it's not over those issues. 90% of the time, it's not over a gospel issue. It's over trivial matters. I was shocked when I became a pastor. I, you know, thinking about becoming a pastor, I always, I always expected conflict. I always expected that there would be issues. I expected it to be from the enemy. I expected it to happen in the church. But I thought it was going to be about theological issues. Like, hey, I, I don't agree with your... Uh, interpretation of this passage, or I don't agree with your view of atonement or whatnot. 
But that almost never happens. That almost never happens. Any conflict that ever occurs, or 90% of any conflicts that ever occur, it's about silly things. I, I, I can't, you know, elaborate those things, but if I were to tell you some examples, you'd be like, wait a minute, what? I and mean, that's what someone got upset about? Like, that, that's the issue? So why is there such conflict? I think that 90% of the issues are caused by our own pride. And here's the thing, pride often masquerades as godliness. And it can sneak into our hearts and into our relationships without us even knowing it. Uh, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards once said this, Pride is a person having too high of an opinion of himself. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into the universe and the last sin that's rooted out. Pride is the worst sin. It's the most secret of all sins. There's no other matter in which the heart is more deceitful and unsearchable. Alas, how much pride the best have in their hearts. Pride is God's stubborn enemy. There's no sin so much like the devil as pride. It's a secret and subtle sin and appears in many, a great many shapes which are undetected and unsuspected. Pride can come into our hearts and come into our churches and look a lot like godliness or devotion. See, human beings, we have a tendency to use the trappings of religion to boost our own ego, to boost ourselves up rather than to build other people up. Back in the Middle Ages, there were a number of cathedrals that were built, and these cathedrals were beautiful, and you can go and visit some of those throughout Europe today. And what's remarkable about them is that most of them, almost all of them, uh, we don't know who the architect or the builders were. They weren't concerned about that. There was no signature on the cornerstone. There's no records that we have. We don't know who built them or who designed these great sanctuaries because they weren't concerned about that. But oftentimes, our human tendency is to kind of differentiate ourselves from other people to show our superiority. It's like that person is different than me, then I'm better than that person. And we use our differences to demonstrate superiority over other people, and that is not in line with the gospel. It's an affront to the gospel. We get into a conflict with someone else, and we separate from them maybe because we know better than them. And I think that's the reason why there are so many denominations. At one time, there was a church that got along, and then somebody came along and said, hey, I think that we should do this. Or I think that we should believe this. And then, you know, the leadership said, no, I, I, I think you're wrong. I think we should do it this way. And this person that comes along with this new idea said, hey, uh, who agrees with me? Who agrees with me? And then, you know, get a bunch of people that follow after that person. And then you have two start churches to start over one. I think there's three ways that pride shows itself in the church. First, it's intellectual pride, which says, I know more than you. Then there's moral pride, which says, I do better things than you. And then there's spiritual pride that says, I'm closer to God than you. And if they, any of these things in our heart were, are in our heart, then we're headed for conflict. And here's the thing. Maybe you're right about any of those things. Maybe we are, we do know more than other people. Maybe we are more moral than other people. Maybe we are closer to God. Well, that just means that we have a greater opportunity to help others along in their journey of faith. 
You think about Jesus, the greatest human being ever to live. He was greater than any of us when it comes to uh, his intellect, his morality, his spirituality. And yet, what did Jesus choose to do? He chose to become a servant. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Jesus was God. He's the greatest human being to ever live, and he chose to humble himself. We are far from being gods, and yet oftentimes we try to exalt ourselves. If only we would lay down our pride for the sake of others. How much could God use us? How much could God's spirit flourish through us? And how many people would be pointing to the gospel? One of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. And uh, in that movie, if you're not familiar with the story of the movie, Maximus, uh, he serves this great Roman empire, and that Roman empire is brutally murdered. Uh, and after that, Maximus is sent to exile, basically, and made into a slave. And he kind of works his way up through the ranks, and he's a great warrior, and so he becomes a gladiator. You know, and he defeats some, some other gladiators in these kind of lower gladiatorial contests. And then he's brought to the Colosseum, and it was this great display where they're just going to have this kind of reenactment of the War of Carthage. And the idea was that these gladiators would be sent into the Colosseum, and they would be weak, and they, you know, they didn't have many weapons. They would have uh, shields, but they weren't the best shields, swords, but not the best swords, and that's all they had, and they were kind of helpless. So they'd be sent in the middle of the Colosseum, and then uh, these, the, the Roman forces would come in and just basically wipe them out. So there's a scene in the movie where Maximus and the other gladiators are sent into the middle of the Colosseum, and everyone is going crazy cheering because they just want to see some blood. They just want to see some death. And Maximus yells to the other gladiators, and he says, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. He says, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. And they huddle up with their shields close to one another. But there's this tendency to run for your life when you're in that situation, to go out on your own. One of them actually does, runs away from the group, and he's cut down immediately. He says, stay together, stay together. Finally, they stay together, and the chariots, the, people, the other people had spears, uh, the people, the archers come closer and closer to them, and then just at the right moment, Maximus yells, now, and they, and they take off attack, and they decimate the Roman army. The evil emperor Commodus remarks after this, he says, my memory of Roman history was rusty, but didn't we beat Carthage the first time? Says, Maximus says, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of things coming out of the gate today. There's a lot of darkness that is before us. 
And as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to stay together. We cannot afford to go our own way. We cannot afford to walk in darkness. Jesus' desire is that we would be unified. So that's the first thing Jesus prays for, communion, that they may be one. And second thing is union, in order that they may be in us. One thing that's clear throughout Scripture is that God desires a real, personal, intimate relationship with his people. That we would experience joy and intimacy in a relationship with him that's unlike any other relationship. And yet, once again, this is, has been an area where the church has often failed. The Swiss theologian Philip Schaff puts it this way. He says, American Christianity is more Petrine than Johannine. More like busy Martha than like the pensive Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. It expands more in breadth than in depth. It, often, uh, it is often carried on like a secular business and in a mechanical or utilitarian spirit. It lacks the beautiful enamel of deep fervor and hardiness, the true mysticism and appreciation of history and the church. It wants the substratum of a profound and spiritual theology, and under the mask of orthodoxy is not infrequently conceals, without intending or knowing it, the t- tendency to abstract intellectualism and superficial rationalism. This is especially evident in the doctrine of the church and of the sacraments and the meagerness of the worship, wherein nothing is left but preaching free prayer and singing. We often miss the point, and the problem is if we miss the point here, we miss everything. If we miss the point of our lives, the point of the church, union with Christ, then we miss everything. If we don't make knowing and loving God the number one priority of our souls, then we've missed the point. We often are doing people. Like Shaft says, we're more like Martha than Mary. We'd rather be doing than sitting at the feet of Jesus. We'd rather get something done and then add Jesus on to the end than allow our activity to flow out of our relationship with God. But here's the problem with that. If it's all about activity, then we're never going to accomplish anything of significance. D.L. Moody, the great theologian or evangelist and theologian, said this, Every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. John chapter 15, the men's Bible study, we've been looking through John chapter 15, and uh, at the, we took, talk about different levels of fruitfulness. And uh, the last session that we looked at last week was talking about what does it take to produce much fruit in our life? And we think that it takes more effort. We think that it takes more dedication. But John chapter 15 tells us what it takes is abiding. Abiding in Christ. That the way to increase fruitfulness is not by doing more, it's by doing less. By spending time with God. By union with Christ. And when we stay close to Christ, when we live in union with Him, there's nothing that's impossible for us. And ironically, this union with Christ also leads to communion with others. When we're in union with God, when we have a close relationship with God, that leads to communion with other people. One scholar puts it this way, our union with Christ brings a unity in Christ that transcends all secondary disagreements. When we're close to Christ, we're also close to our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So what's God's heart for the church? What's Christ's heart for the church? Christ's heart, God's heart, God's desire for us is union with Christ and communion with others. That's his goal for the church. That's what he prays for the church. Now, as we look at that, you think to yourself, so what about the Great Commission? I mean, what about Jesus' commands to make disciples of all nations? Does that mean that's not important? Of course not. Of course we have to reach the lost. But I find it interesting that Jesus' prayer in this passage is not, I pray that they would have a heart for evangelism. I pray that they would be bold in their witness. Although, of course, he wanted the church to do those things. But he doesn't pray for those things. And I think he, the reason he doesn't pray for those things is because those things flow out of union with Christ and communion with other people. When we're close to Christ, we're going to do the things of Christ. When we're close to Christ, we're going to reach out and make disciples of all nations. When we're close to other people, when we're dwelling in unity, then we're going to draw people in. We're going to be a testament to the world in a world of division, we're going to be a testament to the truth of the kingdom of God. The late uh, Lutheran theologian Hale, uh, O. Halsby says this, The future of the Christian work, which is now being carried on with such great intens intensity, does not depend upon curtailment or reorganization. It depends upon whether the Spirit of God can persuade us to take up the work of prayer. A man named Clifton Fadiman, he wrote a book called uh, The Brown Book of Anecdotes. Uh, and he told a number of stories, and one of the stories was about a man by the name of Vladimir Nabokov, uh, who was a Russian novelist. And uh, in the book, he told about this time in the 1940s when Nabokov uh, and his family stayed with another man named James Laughlin in Utah. And uh, Nabokov was a great collector of butterflies and moths. And so he used the time there to collect different species of moths and butterflies. Fadiman shares the story this way. Nabokov's fiction has never been praised for its compassion. He was single-minded, if nothing else. One evening at dusk, he returned from his day's excursion, saying that during hot pursuit near Bear Gulch, he had heard someone groaning most piteously down by the stream. Did you stop? Laughlin asked him. No, I had to get the butterfly. The next day, the corpse of an aged prospector was discovered in what has been renamed in Nabokov's honor, Dead Man's Gulch. Man was dying, and he was focused on finding butterflies. May we not make the same mistake. There's a world around us that is dying a world around us that is in darkness. May we not be caught chasing things that don't matter. What would it look like for us to be the answer to Jesus' prayer? What would it look like for us to be a church that's marked by union with Christ and communion with those around us? Would you pray with me about what that would look like for our church? How can we be people who are focused on our relationship with Christ and allow that relationship to transform us, to energize us, and to allow us to be a light to the world. Would you pray with me about that? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your heart for us. We thank you that you desire a relationship with us. Lord, uh, I pray that we would be a church that's marked by our union with you.
I pray that we would be people of prayer, people of purpose, people that make it our life's ambition to know you and to know your power, to know your resurrection. Lord, also I pray for unity. Lord, help us not to get sidetracked by anything uh, that would keep us from the mission that you have for us. Help us to be single-minded in loving you and loving those around us. Help us not to be caught chasing butterflies, chasing things that matter, because we know there's a world that is so in so desperate need of your love, in so desperate need of a reflection of your kingdom on the earth. Lord, may we be your answer to prayer. May we be a people marked by union with you and communion with others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.